William Barclay, British scholar, writer, tells a story in one of his books about an event that occurred in France during World War II when a French soldier in the unit was wounded and died and they needed to bury him. <clears throat> there was a church nearby which happened to be a Catholic church and they, even under the, the fact of uh, combat, they made their way to that church and asked the priest if their friend, their comrade, could be buried in the churchyard, in the cemetery adjacent to the church. And the priest asked the question, was he a Catholic? Was he baptized a Catholic? Did he convert to Catholicism? They said, we don't know. We don't know anything about his religious history. We just know that he was our comrade in arms and we wanted to bury him near a church. And the priest said, I'm very sorry, but uh, church law denies that. But you can bury him just a few feet outside of the fence that surrounds the cemetery, which they did. They came back late the next day under the cover of darkness to decorate it a little bit, to put some rocks on there, to put whatever they could uh, as a remembrance to their friend. And they couldn't find the grave. So they went inside and they asked the priest, what happened to our friend's grave? And the priest said, I couldn't sleep during the night. The Spirit of God troubled me. And he said, I got up and I went out and I moved the fence to include him. They said, did you have any help? He said, no, I did it myself to include him. Jesus came not to move the fence. He claimed, came to remove the fence. There are not any. And the Apostle Paul emphasizes that, underlines it. And I want you to follow it. If you have your Bible with you, the second chapter of the book of Ephesians. If you're looking for the number in the Bible in the book rack in front of you, it's page 1157, 1157. That'll put you at the 14th verse where I will be in a few moments. What Paul is doing here, he is summing up in this passage of Scripture, he is summing up to these Gentiles. Now you need to remember that he was writing primarily to Gentiles, to folks like us, who to the Jews of that day were considered outcasts, sinners, reprobates. And here were these people who had become Christians, who had become followers of the Lord under the influence and the ministry of Paul and those who uh, worked with him. And so what, what he is doing here, he is showing that Jesus Christ has come to remove the fence, the, the fence of legalism, the electrified, barbed wire fence of legalism that keeps people out rather than inviting people in. Inclusiveness. It is very important to remember, let this please stick in your mind and heart, that Jesus ended legalism as a principle in religion. 
He ended it and replaced it with love. He took down the fence of law, the barbed wire electrified fence of law, and he replaced it with inclusive love. And that is the theme of what Paul is saying here to those early Christians. 14th verse, for he, Jesus, is himself our peace, who has made the two one and, is de and has destroyed the barrier, the fence, the dividing wall of hostility, exclusiveness, destroyed that, abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, you Gentiles, you were way out, you were way out, who were far away, came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, now anytime you read that, that means here is an application for us. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens. Stop right there. You are no longer foreigners and aliens, outsiders, but fellow citizens. And what Paul is giving us here is three metaphors of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And the first is that you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God. If you look up in a concordance, the kingdom of God, there are hundreds of references to it. We don't have time in these few moments to talk about the meaning of the kingdom of God. Succinctly this, it has a past tense, a present tense, and a future tense. The kingdom of God has come, the kingdom of God is coming, the kingdom of God will come. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Now we need to hear that. He said his kingdom was not of this world. For his kingdom is not territorial jurisdiction because of where you live. His kingdom is not religious jurisdiction. Hierarchy. Someone from above telling us what to believe or not to believe. Not religious. Nor is it political. There are those who would like to try to make it such, but in so doing, contradict Jesus Christ. All of the kingdoms of this world, including America, Western civilization, all of that will someday pass away. And the only kingdom that will last will be the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
It is the Christian flag that flies over the American flag. We are Christians first, Americans second. I'm a devoted American. I'd enlist again if we were in a crucial time like many of you did. I don't know whether they would take me or not, but I would still volunteer. I took my four grandchildren to hear the Marine Band Friday night at uh, Laurie Auditorium. And uh, two of them stood there right by me out in the aisle. They put their hand over their heart as they played the Star-Spangled Banner. I wanted them to get a feeling of American freedom and liberty and commitment. And so they put their hands over their heart when they sang the Star-Spangled Banner. I even had them stand, put their hand over their heart when they prayed the Marine Hymn. Uh, I am a devoted American, but let me tell you, you are a better American if you put Jesus Christ first. Jesus Christ is above everyone else, every other kingdom of this world. Uh, Arnold Toynbee, the famous historian, said, the rise and fall of 21 great civilizations exegetes the text, the wages of sin is death. Therefore, the only, now this is my word, that's close as this quote, therefore, the only kingdom that's going to outlive death is the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you put your faith and trust in him, you are a citizen in the kingdom of God. Second metaphor. This becomes more intimate, more personal. You're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, God's family. You have to have a passport in most countries to go from one country to the other. You have to have a passport. But once you're born into the family of God by faith in Jesus Christ, you don't need a passport. You've got a birth certificate. You're in the family of God. We sing it at the conclusion of every service. We'll sing it at the conclusion of this service. We're all part of the family of God together and it meets in various places races forms of worship style of worship all over the world we are part of the great kingdom of god that transcends all of our limitations and all of our provincialisms the kingdom of god and we're also members of the family of god jesus christ is our elder brother and we are part of the divine family The most common word used to address one another in the early, early church in the New Testament was the word brother. They called one another brother. It's gotten a little hackneyed, unfortunately, in our day, but we are brothers in Christ. That doesn't mean brothers always agree on everything. It doesn't mean that brothers sometimes don't have different opinions, different education, different income. All of that is transcended by the fact that we are all sons of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ, and we're all brothers in the family of God. That's why Christians ought to be very supportive of other Christians. Not, other Christians are not our enemy. Everyone who names the name of Jesus Christ whoever they are and wherever they are, and whatever their opinions may be about other extraneous matters, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are a member of the kingdom of God and the family of God. And then, the main emphasis I want to emphasize, you are a temple. Never thought of yourself as a temple, did you? Well, the Bible says your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. 
You and I are little temples. Every one of us, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. But we, there's more to it than that. Listen to this. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone in him in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord and in him you too talking to us you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You and I are part of a temple, a spiritual, eternal temple. Jesus left the upper room where he'd had the last supper and was walking out of Mount Zion down across Caddy Corner, across Jerusalem, past the temple on his way to Gethsemane. And as he went past the temple, he said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. Well, he looked at him like, what in the world are you saying? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. Well, it didn't happen in three days. It wasn't destroyed. What was he talking about? He was saying that the temple, the place where people felt God was, would no longer be in existence, that he was going to build a new temple, and it would be a spiritual temple, and all of us would be an integral part of it. If Jesus was speaking literally there, it didn't come true. You see, what you have to do when you understand the Bible is that the Bible is, is sometimes literally true. Other times, it is symbolically true true spiritually true because you see when Jesus died and rose again he became the cornerstone of a whole new temple and the apostles caught up on that caught that and the early disciples caught it and listen to Stephen's sermon in the seventh chapter of the of the gospel or the book of Acts Stephen one of the first deacons you know was preaching to the Sanhedrin and because of what he said and partially because of what he said in that message they stoned him to death but listen to what he said he caught the message of Jesus Christ we need to catch it or re-catch it listen our forefathers had the tabernacle of testimony with them 7th chapter of Acts 44th verse our forefathers had the tabernacle of testimony with them in the desert it had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. You know that story. However, listen to Stephen, the first Christian martyr, first deacon. However, and this is what rankled them. The Most High does not live in houses made by men. God is not where holy things are. 
holy things are wherever God is. We do not dwell, God does not dwell in temples made by hand. To pick up on it further, the Apostle Peter, if you'd like to see it in your scripture, it's uh, page one, uh, 1201, second chapter, first Peter, fourth verse. This is, this is right down the heart of Christian theology that sometimes gets overlooked. As you come to him, Peter's writing to the church, consequently to us, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, I have that underlined. That's a great phrase. You also, Buckner, you also, every one of you, you also, like living stones, are being built, not finished, we are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You say, Buckner, I'm not holy and I'm not a priest. If you are a Christian, you are both. You are both. Now, we are holy, holy not because of anything we've done, not because of any goodness in us, not because of any works, religious or otherwise. We're not holy because of ourselves. Whatever holiness, or better term, wholeness, W-H-O-L-E-N-E-S-S, whatever wholeness, holiness is in us is a gift of God. Any good thing in us is God's gift in us. And that makes us holy. That doesn't make us holy in our flesh, in our own uh, bodies, but what he does, he comes and inhabits our bodies, our minds, and our spirits, and he begins to build us up in the Spirit. You are holy, and you are a priest. We Baptists strongly believe, at least most of us still do, or some of us still do, strongly believe in the priesthood of the believer. The priesthood of the believer. Everybody is a priest. Now, what did a priest do in the days of the Hebrews? What did the priest do in the desert? What were the two major functions of a priest? Number one, they represented God to the people. They would go into the temple, into the holy place, and once a year into the Holy of Holies, and when they walked out, they would walk out as the physical representatives of God. They represented God to the people in the tents of Israel. What was the second thing they did? They represented the people to God. They prayed for them. They ministered to them. They encouraged them. They brought them to the place of prayer, as we do to our prayer room here, or as we do in our own lives. So a priest does two things. He represents God to the people and the people to God. That's why we are New Testament priests. Jesus said, you're my witnesses. That's what a priest is. Someone who's been in the presence of God and who has something inside of him that's been put there by the grace of God himself, suddenly we're to be his representatives. Paul says we're to be his ministers of reconciliation. You're to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. Every one of us in this room is supposed to be a holy priest 
representing Jesus Christ out into the secular streets of our city. And secondly, we are to come back into the presence of God in our own personal prayer life, in our Bible studies, in our church, in our prayer room, to come back and bring those for whom we're praying. We did that in the deacons meeting before we came out here. What were we doing? We were carrying people in our minds and in our hearts to the throne of God's grace. So every one of us in this room is a holy priest, and we are an integral part of a living temple. You also, like living stones, are built up a, notice the spiritual emphasis here, not a physical house, a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, offering up spiritual sacrifices, not the blood of bulls and of lambs and of he goats and of sheep in the temple, spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, I have said it so many times in 41 years, you're probably tired of hearing it, but it needs to be repeated. I don't think we can say it too often. This is not the church. I love Dr. Truitt, under whom I grew up. I loved his phraseology. He picked it from the Quakers, and Quakers, incidentally, are first cousins to Baptists theologically. They do not call their building the church. They call it the meeting house. And that big 4,000-seat auditorium at the First Baptist Church in Dallas, Dr. Truett would say, we're going to come to the meeting house of the First Baptist Church of Dallas. This is the meeting house for Trinity Baptist Church. Listen to me. Nowhere in the New Testament does the word church ever one time refer to a building not once you know how to spell church you've seen this you've heard this ch first two letters of christ at the beginning at the end ch first two letters of christ's name christ is the alpha the omega the beginning and the end christ christ who is the church spell it ch you are. I am. We're sandwiched by the grace of God before and after. We are therefore living members of the temple of Jesus Christ that he is building. A physical one to be built? Never. Spiritual one going on, and it's so big you could never get all the millions of people into it, but they're all a part of the living stones that are part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, I've been in church in a lot of different places. Probably you have too. Some of you in, in the military, times in the field or on bivouac or somewhere where you'd go to church. I went to church on the fantail of a troop ship in the Pacific, listened to a Catholic priest preach. And my, I wish I knew his name. God used him to encourage me, and I never shook his hand or spoke to him. But we had church on the fantail. That means the back of the ship, the back of the ship, the stern of the ship. When we went to Eastern Europe during the days of the domination of the communists, Eastern Europe, I remember having church in a hotel room in Moscow because we couldn't go anywhere else. We got all the sound foundation, all our folks in there and crowded in there. We had church. We were in Prague in the Olympic Hotel in Prague, also dominated by the communists. 
we couldn't have a worship service where we wanted to. So where did we have it? We had it on the stairwell in the hotel uh, where we were. In Yugoslavia, I went out to preach in a home. It was an illegal meeting, but they brought a lot of people and they just overflowed that house. We had church there in that house. Bratislava, we went to have a, tried to have a service at the church in Bratislava, uh, second largest city in what was then Czechoslovakia. And the government wouldn't let us have it and wouldn't let them uh, schedule a, a new meeting in, the, in their church. And so we rented some of the men who were here, some of the men who were with us, men and women. Uh, we rented the ballroom of the hotel and invited the whole church to come be our guest and invited everybody in the hotel to come. And the pastor of the church in Bratislava preached. I told him, they don't need to hear me. They can hear you. You can speak their language. So he stood up there and preached in the, in the ballroom of a hotel in Bratislava. Probably reached more people than they would ever have reached in their, in their little building. We were in Lucerne, Switzerland. Wanted to have a worship service on Sunday morning. We were getting ready to go somewhere. Didn't have time to go to a church, so we went into the bar room. We got the bar. Wasn't anybody in there. Would have been okay if they were. We went in there, and they said, sure, you can use it. You can have a worship service here, and we did. Well, two weeks ago, I preached up at Green Hall, the oldest dance hall in Texas. <laughs> we had church up there. Some of you were there. I tell you, church is not a place. It's a person. It's a relationship to Jesus Christ who has made each one of us part of the family of God, the kingdom of God, and living stones in the eternal temple that Jesus Christ is building. Cornerstone. Jesus Christ is himself the chief cornerstone. 20th verse, it's on this it's on this uh, cornerstone right here. Uh, Ephesians 3.20 For he, Jesus Christ, himself is the chief cornerstone. I read somewhere by Armitage Robinson or something about the, the huge stone in the temple and uh, on the south wall of the temple, part of the, the wall that, was, that remained standing after Titus destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. And so I called my son Michael, who you know has got his PhD in archaeology and knows all these things. I called Mike and I said, Mike, I want to know about this stone. So he did some checking on it and he called me back. And there's a stone that is called, you can look it up I think on the internet. I don't know how to tell you to do it, but Mike could. Uh, and the master course, it's called the master course. Now try to picture a stone. Master course. 41 feet long, 12 feet high, 15 feet deep, that weighs 370 tons. And we're told that the biggest crane in the world can only lift 250 tons. How did it get there? How did the master stone himself get here? Miraculously, powerfully, the chief cornerstone came to set a course for us. And the cornerstone does four things in the building. Number one, it is essential. It is essential for a number of reasons. But let me underline, first of all, Jesus is essential in your life and mine. He's really not an elective. He's essential. We need him. I need him. I think one of the saddest parts of the New Testament is when Jesus is preaching and he's beginning to 
lay down some of the requirements of what it means to be his follower. And a lot of the crowd began to melt away. Those who'd come just for food and healing, they just kind of began to drift off. And Jesus said some words that I just, that are just so plaintive to me. He said to his disciples, are you going to leave me too? And thank God for Simon Peter. Sometimes he, he said some of the most foolish things, but sometimes in his spontaneity, he says the most powerful things. And he said this in response to Jesus' question. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. To whom will I go when I need forgiveness? To whom do you go? To whom do we go when we need peace that passes understanding? To whom do we go for some direction in life when we cannot see beyond the next moment? To whom shall we go for salvation? For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. To whom shall we go? You have the words of everlasting life. And I urge you today, if you have never accepted him, accept him. He will give you a sense of peace. He will forgive you. He'll give you a power of love you've not known. He will begin to change your life internally, transforming it into external evidences that will be a help to other people. He's essential. That cornerstone is essential to the building. One reason it's essential to the building in Jesus' days is because it set the corner and it set the lines of the building. It set the direction of the building. And because of the, uh, of the nature of it, a line going this way, a line going this way, and figuratively, therefore, a line going this way, and therefore, a line going that way, that cornerstone becomes the corner of the universe, east, west, north, and south. It can expand because it can expand off of the cornerstone. It can expand in any direction and every direction, and it has, and it has expressed itself, and it has communicated its message to the ends of the earth. Where'er the sun doth its successive journeys run has gone the message of Jesus Christ. He's the intersection of every direction, north, south, east, and west. Isn't it interesting that when we get to heaven, we're going to, we're going to have four sides to it, at least the way John describes it, four sides, and three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the west, three gates on the south, 12 of them for people to come from every land and any land. The fence is down, and everybody can come to know the cornerstone of life, the foundation of life, the goal setter of life, the course maker for life. And then this final word, that corner unites people that are going in one direction and another direction. They come together in him. Some people come from a Christian home with a great background, and they come in this direction. Some come in this direction with little or no religious background or spiritual insight, and it's all strange to them, and we meet at the corner. We're all one in the body of Christ. We center upon him, for he 
Jesus Christ has cornered salvation. And salvation belongeth unto God. I told a story on that little tape that we used to dedicate this building in 1960 that I had forgotten about until I re-listened to it just the, the other day. I was preaching in a citywide revival meeting in Aiken, South Carolina. Aiken's just across the Augusta River from Augusta, Georgia. And I was preaching in a revival meeting there in this football stadium. And the, the pastor of the Baptist church there said, Buckner, I want to show you something. I said, it will touch you. And he took me to a cemetery. He took me to where there was a little gravestone, a little headstone. And on that headstone, three words. A little boy. That's all. And he said the story behind this is back in the days when there was a great deal of train travel from the New England area to Florida. Florida was just beginning to expand and develop. There was a lot of train travel. The train would come through Aiken, South Carolina. And this little boy got sick on the train. And so they took him off the train in Aiken and they took him to the hospital but he did not survive he died they couldn't find anybody that knew him they couldn't find anybody from where he had started his journey they couldn't find anyone that was waiting for him at his destination couldn't find anything about him and the pastor said they had the largest funeral they've ever had up until that time in Aiken South Carolina and it was for that little boy, a little boy, known only to God. Well, let me tell you, you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and you will have your name, forget the gravestone business, you'll have your name inscribed indelibly upon the register of heaven, and he knows your name and he knows where you've come from, and he knows who you are, and he knows where you're going because he's gone to prepare a place for you. And you can put your faith and trust in him, and he'll write his name upon your heart. My property, he's in my kingdom, he's in my family, he's part of my temple, he's mine, and he will be mine forever and ever and ever. Thanks be to God. So I invite you to trust him today. I invite you to come be part of his church, the church that worships and prays and works and endeavors here to be priests of the world. We invite you to come. I'll be here to greet you. God's invitation, not mine, God's invitation. Respond to it, I pray, for Jesus' sake and, and for your sake. Let's stand and sing.